You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 146 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Sarah Thomas, and with me today are Ilea Danner-Grubbs and Sheila Woodruff. Hello, Sheila and Ilea. Hi. Hey, good to hear you guys. Yeah, it's so, and it's so great. Uh, we were talking just before we started recording about how it's been a while since we've all gotten to talk together. Um, so let's introduce ourselves for any listeners who are new to the program. Um, let's see. Ilea, would you like to get us started? Sure. My name is Ilea Danner-Grubbs. I live in Trustville, Alabama with my husband and our two young children. I'm an elementary teacher by profession, and now I homeschool full-time. And uh, we've actually already finished our school year uh, for this year, and we are now doing a uh, summer session of STEM classes uh, just to mix it up and, and have a little variety. So that's what we're into these days is coding and robotics. Oh, wow. That sounds fascinating. And I'm a little bit envious uh, that you all have already finished your school year. Um, we still yeah, have, it's very um, nice. <laughs> we still have about a month to go. Um, not that anybody's counting down the days. But, uh. <laughs> it's nice, but I will say we started at the beginning of last June. So we ended up with oh, okay. 201 days in our year. So it was, it was a long school year, even though we finished at the end of March. Wow. Way to go. That's awesome. Um, all right, Sheila? Hi, my name's Sheila Woodruff. If you are a really long time listener to the podcast, I was on years ago when we were first getting started and it is really, really nice to be back. Um, so thank you for having me. I um, live in Louisville, Kentucky with my family and am now the director of adult discipleship at our church here in town. Um, it's fun to be in a new position. Working part-time in this past year has been really fascinating, being home with our kids and helping them through school. Similarly fascinating, and it's nice to be doing this with you guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, we're thrilled to have you back, uh, Sheila, and I'm so glad I get to talk to you uh, in particular because, yeah, it's been it's been about four years since I think we got a chance to talk to each other. I know, um, so it's looking... so long, Sarah. <laughs> I know, but I'm I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. This is going to be a uh, wonderful panel, and I'm looking forward to it. And I am uh, Sarah Thomas. I live in the metropolitan Atlanta area with my husband and our now two dogs. Uh, we adopted a second one about a month ago. Her name is Ursula, and she's a uh, She's proving uh, a lesson in patience for all of us. Um, I also am an educator by trade. I teach at one of the uh, area independent schools. And um, 
Yeah, we are, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, we have about a month left of school. Um, my students are very excited for the end of the school year, um, and I have really enjoyed my time with them, but I, I also understand their desire uh, to move on. I teach mostly seniors, so I know they're, they're anxious to start that next stage of their lives. So, um, so with that, um, I thought I'd begin by providing um, a brief statement or a few brief comments about our motivation for this episode. Uh, since many Western Christian traditions celebrated Easter Sunday two weeks ago, and some are still celebrating what is referred to as the Easter season, it seems both timely and appropriate to spend some time contemplating the passion and the resurrection. Today's discussion is going to examine the female figures who are mentioned in the different gospel accounts and in um, various other aspects of the Christian tradition. And to begin, I'd like to ask everyone, uh, what have been our experiences with the Passion and Resurrection in worship settings, uh, perhaps in other settings, whether that's the Station of the Cross, in Bible studies, in small groups? Um, have any of our experiences involved explicit mention of the women who are mentioned in these gospel accounts? Um, and so, Sheila, would you mind starting us? Not at all. Um, I'm super excited to be talking about this today, and I swear we could spend hours and hours, so hopefully we don't run too long, um, because there's just so much to say about these women. Um, so some of some of the things that popped into mind when you asked that question, Sarah, were, um, one, we do this experiential Stations of the Cross every year, at least you know, non-COVID years um, at our church that are really amazing, and they provide an opportunity at each of I don't know that we use the traditional stations every time, but at each of those kind uh, station sort of ideas where you are participating in something um, and it's I'm doing a bad job explaining it, but um, you're able to like put your hands on um, the rough hewn cross, right. Of, of a, a big piece of wood. Like one year, it was just a huge piece of lumber that you had to kind of heft in the chapel and just get a feel for what this was like. And then there's usually an invitation to prayer at that station. Um, and then you move on to the next step. And so you kind of walk through these and there was one year they had this um, like black tunnel made of cloth that you had to like really get down and kind of hunch crawl your way through um, before you could come out to the very end and leave the chapel itself. And it was this idea of like, right, like kind of bowing down to death on Good Friday that you're you're able to do this because they have it up um, all week, all week before Easter. So all of Holy Week. Um, and it, it was just a really amazing way to do that. And in some years I know I've gone and they would specifically identify some of the women, whether it was while they were mourning, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Um, or whether it was while they were at the foot of the cross and, you know, Jesus identifies some of them and, you know, tells John that Jesus's mother is now his mother and he's to go and, and take care of them. Um, but thought that it was really interesting that at some point in the journey from year to year, they're usually identified and, and every person who comes through this station process is invited to think about them. So that was one that I thought was pretty neat and um, a little bit different. For me, one of the the like good old standbys of Easter, that's not the right word, but is um, sunrise service. And in my practice, we have often done that in a cemetery. Now this goes back to being like 
a pastor's kid <laughs> way back being teeny tiny. And like every year you just, you did all the things for all of these major holidays that were church holidays. And so we would all get up super early and put on all of our fancy Easter clothes, which in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, were never warm enough for sunrise in the cemetery in March or April. Um, but we were there and it, it was always just this amazing opportunity to really feel and, and kind of feel embodied in watching the sunrise and what it means for Christ to come into the world as the light of the world, right? Um, and to overcome death in this way and to listen to the birds begin to chirp and to see, you know, people in the darkness and then to see them lit up um, is just always a really amazing thing for me. And that direct tie to the women being the people who participated in that first Easter Sunday, right, at sunrise, um, doing this thing is is pretty amazing to me in my faith journey. That's really awesome. Um, I that sounds like such a moving experience to to witness or participate in sunrise service within the cemetery. What a powerful testimony to you know to the victory over death and that sort of reminder of the you know the reminder of of the the last time right yeah um, exactly. you know that moment when we all are going to get to participate in that um that's beautiful i um i haven't witnessed anything like that myself um but that sounds like that would be really powerful. Um, I would encourage it if you can ever find one. I'm not sure if this is something that Catholics do or not. But <laughs> it's worth going to a non-denominational service just to experience that that moment. I mean, any sunrise for me is a reminder of it. But it's that same, you know, when you're in church, I don't know if y'all do this, but um, when there is a baptism, we're often remind or asked to remember our own baptisms. And for me, anytime I witness a sunrise, there's a lot of that. Um, remembrance as well. And it is, it's, it's very powerful. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, there are, um, there are rules about sanctified ground and, and, and holding service, you know, and, and holding mass on sanctified ground. So um, I'm not sure if, uh, if a cemetery would qualify. Um, I know that the sunrise services, most of the ones that I have attended that have been outdoors, uh, have also been non-denominational services, um, and they have been beautiful ones. I actually went to, I distinctly remember going to one at the beach. Um, my mom's uh, family lives outside of Savannah, and and so we went, you know, yeah, we went down to the beach one morning, um, one year for Easter Sunday, and that was, that was really beautiful. Um, there was something else I was going to say, and I forgot what it was. So in the interim, um, Ilea, what about you? I'm just overcome with envy. This sounds so wonderful. Um, I had such a different experience with Easter. I grew up in very conservative uh, non-denominational churches, and like, it's very hard to describe, but like, we celebrated Easter, definitely. Um, we celebrated Good Friday almost not at all. Um, there was almost no, like, there were no Good Friday services that I ever remember. Um, I remember one time a traveling group came through and did a passion play where they did the, like, you know, play of the the passion on the stage. Um, and it, I'm sure it was around Easter. And it was very uh, moving 
to me as a, I think maybe middle schooler, um, to the point of uh, uh, being almost traumatic. Like it was, it was very vivid and and very you know realistically depicted, even though it was just on a stage. Um, I I swore from that day on that I would never wear a cross necklace again because a cross was too um, traumatic for me to wow. to see after that. And I never have. I I do not have cross emblems um, because it's too painful for me. Um, so that was you know that was a, a big deal for me that time. But in general, like. Um, I, it has been as an adult that I have discovered these things. Um, there is a church near us that does a, a walk through the, the Easter story, kind of like you were talking about, um, where you go through the different rooms and it's kind of like, it's not the stations of the cross because that is a very specific thing, but, but it's kind of pieces of the Easter story that, that have that, the tactile, um, kind of, uh, component to it. There's usually something you can either taste or touch or feel or, or see your, you know, hear and, and there's, you're kind of, uh, encouraged to participate in different ways. And, um, we did that. I think a couple of years with the kids and, and that has been really meaningful. Of course, the last couple of years we haven't done it because of COVID, et cetera. Um, but, but the churches that I have been a member of have never done anything, you know, like that. Um, they just do, they don't, they don't do anything to do with, um, good Friday or anything. And, um, so on my own, I have kind of, uh, worked through some of this last year. We went through uh, the Stations of the Cross with the kids. I printed off a bunch of materials and we um, talked through them and read through them one at a time. And, you know, so I've kind of worked through, you know, some of this at, um, on my own. We started celebrating Holy Week um, uh, several years ago, um, where every day we have stories and crafts and activities that we do as we walk through. Um, but it's all been kind of independently. Um, so uh, the idea of celebrating it uh, with the whole whole congregation just sounds lovely. Um, and I've never done a sunrise service either. I know a lot of churches do, but um, I none of them that I have ever been a part of do. Uh, so I, I have not done that, but it sounds lovely. <laughs> and so to answer your question about the women, um, I, I have heard and read the, the Easter story many, many times, um, you know, from the time I was very, very young. But it, again, was not until I was an adult that I ever, um, that it ever somebody pointed out to me specifically that hey the women are very prominent in this story and that's important and that's unusual or that was you know culturally unexpected and um the first time I ever really thought about it was a, a post that um Glennon Doyle did I don't know if y'all you're probably familiar with her yes. she's pretty popular yeah yes. and she did a post a couple of years ago and she she said I'm going to read it because it's not the whole thing but this quote the two most holy messages of Christianity one that he is born and two that he is risen were both delivered by angels to women the women are the first to know and believe we always are we are the holy rascals we are the healers and and I had never thought about that before like reading that like what five six years ago was the first time that it had ever been pointed out to me that the women were the first to receive that news and that they were um as the early church called them the apostles to the apostles that that was never pointed out so that has been an an interesting and enlightening um journey for me in my faith over the last I mean maybe not even 10 years like coming to this realization of the importance of the women specifically in this story. That's well, thank you for sharing all of that. That's, um, that's a really powerful testimony. I really like that, um, that, uh, and the Glennon Doyle bit that, uh, quote that you just read, uh, really is so, uh, so, 
empowering if that's the right word i'm not sure if empowerment is is an appropriate concept in this context but uh but i really like that idea and um and i'm glad that you mentioned it uh particularly the bit about how women always are because one of the questions that i'm hoping we can get to in a little bit is to what extent do the women other than mary the mother of jesus also participate in this tradition um and i know in our um in the magnificat episode that we taught that we recorded um a while back maybe a year and a half ago at this point um there was some discussion about how um about for example how the magnificat participates in this scriptural tradition that goes back into the old testament so i'm wondering if y'all have any thoughts about that um and i'm looking forward to that and i also think it's wonderful that you're um that you're uh, using Holy Week as an opportunity to um, to discuss various components of the passion with your children and the activities. That sounds really wonderful. That's awesome. <laughs> um, the uh, as for myself. Um, there are a few things that uh, that I think of when I think of the gospel passion accounts um, in the Catholic schools that I attended growing up um, and in some of the ones where I've taught, uh, there are um, there is something that we refer to as the living stations of the cross. So it sounds uh, similar to some of what uh, what you all were talking about um, as far as the experiential stations. Um, the living stations of the cross uh, normally involve using the traditional stations and their um, are students who take the roles of the various um you know of the various figures within uh the passion story and um there are two experiences that i can think of in particular one of them is uh, a living stations where the entire student body gathers together usually in the gym because our school chapels aren't big enough for the uh you know for the whole student population and um they watch the um they watch their classmates uh walk these stations and their um you know act out these stations and there are reflections that accompany each of them and uh, when i was in middle school there was um there was another component to that. So in addition to the same sort of thing with walking through the traditional stations and um, and having students, um, our classmates, when I was a student doing this, um, take on the roles of the figures in the passion, we would actually set up the stations around the campus. So we would be walking outside. Um, and you know and actually walking something akin to the via dolorosa uh which was wonderful and one of the things that i remember particularly in uh in my middle school experience um was that everyone was really excited well at least the girls were all really excited about the role of veronica who um i know is a part of um several different christian traditions um stations of the cross in the catholic church is the sixth station um she wipes the face of uh jesus um as he's you know as he walks past um she steps out and she wipes his face for him um and but that story is not in scripture um and but veronica's role was the one that all of the girls wanted because it was one of the few that had actual lines um and 
it was yes, it was a very big deal to to get the role of Veronica. Um, That's amazing. In the, station, <laughs> in the Stations of the Cross, um, and everybody wanted it. Um, the other uh, the other role available, you know, that the other one that that a lot of the girls wanted was the role of the weeping women. Um, they weren't necessarily intelligible lines, but they did get to say something, you know, make some sort of noise. Um, and I honestly don't remember which one I was, and my mother probably remembers, and I probably should have called her <laughs> before I started, um, before I got in touch with you all to record the episode. Um, I don't remember if I actually did get one of those Veronica parts or if I was one of the weeping women. Um, I just don't remember. Uh, but at any rate, so that was, um, that was a, a big component of, of my, of my middle school years. And then also of, um, of some of my work in Catholic schools as a teacher. The other um, main uh, thing that I think about when I think of the Passion is uh, the Palm Sunday Mass uh, in the Catholic Church, which involves uh, the reading of the entire Passion, and it usually involves the entire congregation. So there, um, the priest will read the role of Jesus, uh, the lectors who um, who read the readings during the service uh, will take on uh, the roles as narrator and some of the other um, uh, and some of the other voices. Uh, usually, the the cantor or the person in charge of the music for the service will take one of them. But there are roles attributed to the crowd, um, and in some of the churches I've attended over the years, those. Uh, um, the entire congregation participates in those uh, in those lines from the passion that are assigned to the crowd. Um, although in um, you know even in these readings, uh, the discussion of uh, for example this year it was uh, the passion reading we read was uh, from. Mark, and so there's the discussion of Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of the younger James and Joseph and Salome. Um, and, um, but the narrator talks about them at the end of, uh, the scripture. So they are, um, otherwise not, um, not always given explicit, uh, mention in the course of the passion. So, um, so it sounds like we have some, uh, some varying experiences. Uh, with uh, with these women and uh, with these stories, and I'm looking forward at this point to transitioning into uh, the reading portion of um, of our episode for today. Unless there's um, anything else that we want to bring up or that we want to talk about before we um, uh, before we move on. No, I think I'm good. I was laughing because I, did, I learned about Veronica last year when we did the, the Stations of the Cross, when I did those with the kids. I, I got to that point. I was like, wait, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> like I she remember this person. Today. Was this person? I learned about Veronica today. So I'm like, oh, now I got to go do some research after we're done here. It's really fascinating. Yeah, she and there are I was looking something up about it and I was. Um, yeah, I was. Uh, trying to find some reliable sources uh, so that hopefully I can add them to the show notes for people who are interested in Veronica. Um, 
there is some discussion over uh, the origin of um, of her appearance in um, in the Passion story, well, specifically within the Stations of the Cross, and how um, how she might have uh, how she might have come to be included. The um, the the second part of this uh, of the Veronica component of the Passion is that after she wipes the face of Jesus, Jesus's face appears on the towel that she uses, and so uh, the veil of Veronica. Um, is something that is, uh, you know, that is uh, considered an incredibly uh, holy relic, and is um, and is something that has, um, yeah, that has additional uh, significance within uh, some church traditions. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, um, so yes, and she has, uh, she does uh, have a day in the calendar where she's celebrated, I believe. St. Veronica's feast day is July the 12th. So, um, anyway, uh, but yes, she's, she's also fascinating, uh, but also not in scripture. So, um, so speaking of scripture, our primary reading for the day, it consists of the four gospel accounts of the Passion and uh, with particular attention to where and um, to where and how uh, the uh, the women appear and participate in um, you know in this seminal event within uh, within the Christian tradition, um, and then there is also and I will put this in a show in the show notes. Um, I was able to find. Um, what looks like was is probably a handout from a college course that is um, that looks at the scripture uh, accounts of the passion side by side in four columns. So you can look at where um, you know where the different events appear and um, you know and look across for uh, continuities and for differences. Um, so. My first question for you ladies was uh, whether or not there are any components of any one or more of the four gospel accounts that speaks to you in particular, and um, and if so, what those might be. Yeah, I have one. Um, it's kind of an odd question, but like I always, in, in the last couple of years of study, one thing that has stood out to me is that this, the story of the passion, there's always a question of what where does it start, right? It's it's kind of a, it's an ongoing story of, of Jesus's life. So at what point do you consider it the beginning of, you know, capital, the passion? Um, and and normally I would have said probably the Last Supper, right? Or, or the, the the triumphal entry. So you start with with Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, and then the Last Supper, and, and then you go from there. Um, but what I found in my studies, and actually there was a, a Lenten devotional that I did that pointed this out, that um, really the catalyst for all the events of the Passion is the raising of Lazarus. And so if you're going to go back to there, and I noticed that the the printout that you have that has the, the synoptics, um, it does this. It starts with um, the raising of Lazarus and, and um, the anointing of Jesus by Mary slash 
the woman, there's several different accounts that refer to this woman differently. And um, there's a lot of discussion about whether it is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and also other women that do it at different times, or whether it's all the same person who's referred to differently. But, but there is this anointing that happens right at the beginning of this story. And the, the raising of Lazarus is um, kind of the turning point in uh, the Pharisees' decision to, okay, we, we have to get rid of this guy and, and all that stuff. But the anointing part with, with Mary or the woman, um, I think is a really important beginning because Jesus points it out as the beginning. He says, she's anointing me for my death. And that whenever people tell the story, they're going to to tell her story. Um, and I, I think that's interesting because the Messiah, the word Messiah means the anointed one, right? So she's performing this anointing right before his death, which is a priestly office. You know, the, the anointed is a priestly or a prophet um, office. And, but she's doing it as a servant, you know, on her knees at his feet. And in one of the, the accounts, it's his head. And, and, um, and, and the, book that I had read. It's called 40 Days of Decrease. It's a fantastic Lenten devotional. But she points this out because she says, um, you know, they didn't bathe daily back then. And so it is very, very possible that um, even when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that he could still smell this nard, this strong perfume while he was dying. And that that in and of itself could have been a reminder to him, an encouragement to him of his father who prepares all things and and sees ahead and plans all things and orders all things well. And um, I just I just think that's such a beautiful piece of the picture that we kind of look over. We see it as an interesting individual story, um, but not necessarily as this this beautiful beginning and ending of um, the, the passion story. So I think that's really important to bring out because it is one of the women who is involved in the story. And, you know, we we see that Mary, uh, the sister of Lazarus, um, we see other times when she's quote unquote sitting at his feet, which most is referring to her being a disciple of his and, and learning from him and um, just, just how important she was as a part of the women they, they, that's referred to over and over again in the Gospels, you know, the women who followed him, who ministered to him, who funded him, who, you know, were disciples of his too. And, and um, I just, I think that's an important part of the story. That's remarkable. I got goosebumps listening to you tell that, Ilya. I'm not sure I've ever heard that bookend used, um, at least not in my you know, discernible memory. And it's beautiful. It makes a lot of sense in so many different ways. And I, especially, um, and I'll talk more about my women pieces that I think are important to my own faith journey in a minute, but um, because it, it does like start there and so much of Jesus's ministry, I think even maybe ministry he didn't know at first was going to be his ministry, but was drawing the circle wider. We use that language a lot in church, mm-hmm. um, right. In in like, in Jewish tradition, like the, the males absolutely would have been participating in this and the women too, in their own ways. But Jesus was inviting women to sit at his feet and encouraging them to do so like Mary and like Martha. Right. And, um, and I, I think, um, this speaks too to the women of means who were participating in his circle. So these were women of privilege who didn't necessarily need to follow Jesus because it was going to lift them up. Like it might do other people who didn't have that same means or privilege. Like mm-hmm. these were women who were choosing to follow him because they believed the words that he was preaching. Um, which I, I find particularly important, especially as I'm 
constantly evaluating my own privilege in this day and age um, and wondering what I'm doing with it. And is it, is it enough of a blessing? Am I sitting at Jesus's feet as much as I need to and pouring out um, on him and in the community around me, those things, which, you know, God doesn't need, but that we need to pour out. So thank you for sharing that. That's just beautiful. Yes, thank you. And one as you as you mentioned that Ilea, I started looking. Um, I have been working through um, for the past couple of years, and I've recommended it on uh, on the show. It's been one of my passing ons before. Um, there is uh, there's a pair of women who I think uh, live in Texas, and um, they started a, a mass journal. Um, company called Every Sacred Sunday that uh, provides the readings for um, the readings for each Sunday in each um, each holy days uh, masses and then spaces to reflect on them and um, I pulled out my uh, my copy of Every Sacred Sunday for this year, and um, and I promise this is not a sponsored post, uh, but to look at the the reading for Palm Sunday and um, yes the um, the anointing in uh, by the woman in Bethany at the beginning of Mark chapter 14 is in fact included in the long form of the gospel reading. But um, but one of the things that sometimes is an option for uh, for some uh, Sunday masses, there will be a long form of a reading and then a short form of a reading that is allowed to be used if there's a reason for, you know, if there are time constraints, if the, you know, the the schedule of services throughout the day might not quite allow for um, for the long uh, the long forms to be read and still get everybody, you know, out from one mass and back into the, you know, and then it, the next people coming in for the next service to come in um, and, you know, for other reasons. Um, but in the short form of the passion story that's read on Palm Sunday, the short form starts at the beginning of chapter 15 um, in Mark's gospel not back at the anointing at Bethany. So it is possible um, within, um, you know, it is possible even within the mass readings um, for uh, her to be glossed over uh, because of, because she does appear at the very beginning of the story, but also, you know, depending on where the readings fall, um, you know, where the readings fall for any particular year so that's really interesting think, yeah um so and, and I, I hadn't considered it all you know I hadn't considered it before I took a look at this um you know at at this chart also so thank you for bringing that up um Sheila what uh what particularly speaks to you this it's really hard because what I want to do is like go through this chart right and talk about all the times where the women show up because yeah. um, because they're present in so many places that I I don't really know that I fully internalized um or I know that I don't every year at least when we're re-listening to the gospel story like I pick up on them here and there but haven't really concentrated on them in the same way but they are just present through the whole story um and, and mark an important presence, right? Like they're performing the rituals 
of the time. They're mourning, they're um, preparing, they're getting ready to prepare Jesus's body for burial. Like they're doing the things that need to be done. Um, I think probably for me, still the most important piece of this, if I had to pick one, is that Sunday morning when they come to the tomb, um, whichever version, you, uh, you know, whichever gospel you read this in. Um, but reading them collectively today was really interesting, too, to see who's there, right? Who gets named, um, who, is, who is showing up, their burial spices in hand. Um, what happens while they're there, whether they're meeting an angel or Jesus himself, um, and then what they do after, you know, in at least two gospels, they go and tell the guys what happened. And then, you know, one gospel, I think it's Mark, um, he says, you know, they were told they should go tell them, but then they didn't do it. I don't know. You know, this is the eyewitness account part, right? Yeah, (laughs) I saw that too. (laughs) I know. I was like, all right, Mark, calm down. Um, <laughs> but I just I love this and I think for me part of it is what I was saying earlier about the sunrise service like that that over my lifetime has become a really meaningful part of my faith story right um we read Jesus feminist years ago um by Sarah Bessie and she talks about these spiritual midwives and I know we've used that term on the show um periodically. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, here are some of those earliest spiritual midwives, like they're just showing up. Um, they didn't have any hope that he was rising again. That's, I don't think maybe they did. I don't know. It doesn't tell us that they did. Um, they were showing up to bury the body to do what they weren't able to do on Friday because it was Sabbath. And so, um, they, they were just there to do what they had to do. They were following the rituals. Um, and I have to respect that as a person who rarely wants to follow the rituals or abide by the rules when the train runs off the tracks. Like, I want to throw my hands up and kind of freak out a little bit. And they don't do that, right? Um, the other thing that's been really important to me in this passage is just some of the preaching I've heard around it. I'm in the United Methodist um, denomination and tradition. I mentioned earlier, my dad's a pastor. And so one of the first sermons I remember hearing about this was my dad. And I was in high school. Um, and maybe that was somewhat on purpose, not that he was preaching just to me, but <laughs> bring this up while I could still listen, right? Um, but he preached one Easter Sunday about these these women. I'm assuming he's Luke, but I'm, I'm speaking out of turn. Um, but he preached about these women and he said, you know, I just don't know if we would have had the church if the women hadn't shown up that morning to do what needed to be done. And then if they hadn't left to tell everybody what had happened, he said, if the women weren't there, if nobody had shown up, what might have happened? Like, would Jesus have still shown up in the room, the locked door? Maybe, probably. I don't know. You know, would would Jesus still have shown up to the the guys walking to Emmaus? Maybe. Um, I mean, that's a whole lot of work to do to not then present yourself. But if the the women hadn't been there, um, what that might have looked like for us. And, And I... That that still is just something I chew on every year at Easter, and I'm so grateful for these women to be um, continue to be spiritual midwives and mothers to all of us. Um, and that's the the other passage I really love is when when Jesus tells is looking down at Mary and John, like bless him, John is still there at the foot of the cross, and says, you know, like woman, see your son, son, this is your mother. And like John's mom is right there potentially if Salome is John's mother, which I'm understanding she is. You know, he already has a mom, and and I believe that Mary's other sons are still alive at this point, right? Because Jude goes and writes 
um, a book of yeah, the Bible James. later on. Mm-hmm. James, yeah, thanks. Mm-hmm. So, so like those guys are still living too. Like, what is what is the deal here? And that that opening again, that drawing the circle wide. Like, your family is more than just the family you're born into. Like, when you're part of this Christian tradition and this Christian faith, like your family is all of these people who um, are following Jesus in this way and putting their hope in Christ. So those are those are my two. Yeah, I love yeah. that idea that like they showed up anyway, even though it's not like they were hoping that it's not like they were hoping for what we know happened. You know, they they right. showed up to do the thing even after the disappointment and the like, that's just that's such a an amazing testimony of faithfulness and of a hope that is so much deeper than circumstances. Yes. And sometimes what happens is when you do the ritual, even when it's hard, you get a miracle, right? Like you're not expecting yeah. the miracle, yeah. but, but God works the miracle. And I, I mean, I've seen that in my life happen when you just follow the discipline. Like, I don't want to sit here and do this thing. I don't want to wake up early to read my Bible. I don't want to do it. I just, I'm tired. I can't Lord. But when I sit there and do it, God always unfolds even the tiniest of miracles, right? This little I, bit of resurrection yeah. hope. Absolutely. I taught a Bible study um, a couple years ago on Ruth and I called it the power of the ordinary life for exactly what you're talking about. That like Ruth is another example of a woman who just like did what she was supposed to do according to the law and God blessed that. And through her, you know, comes David and Jesus and, you know, and that, that it doesn't have to be giant acts of, um, you know, valor on the battlefield. And like God uses those too, but that, mm-hmm. you know, God can use a woman who just goes to glean according to the, you know, the Levitical law or a woman who just goes to anoint the body with spices according to tradition or whatever, that that those small, very quotidian, very ordinary acts of everydayness can be what God uses to change the world. Amen. Yeah, that's a beautiful. Yeah, I. Uh, that's. Sorry, I'm speechless. I'm. <laughs> it is. You preached for quiet. Good job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's it it is such a beautiful sentiment, and one of the things that that has particularly struck me and and Sheila, I I think I think I agree with you also. The the part of you know aside from having wanted to be. Veronica in the Stations of the Cross when I was in middle school. Um, the, the, the women on, you know, on um, the resurrection morning is, is the part of the story that has struck me most profoundly most recently. And one of the things that, um, that I think is, is really profound is that it's, um, and I think it's kind of like the point that your uh, that your father made, right? That um, you know that there might not have been a church without these women. Um, that it's the women who who stay, right? At um, you know at the foot of the cross, but also um, if the readings for uh, Easter Sunday, and I noticed this just a couple of weeks ago in the ones that. Um, you know, in the ones that that we use for mass, uh, there are three options. Um, uh, there's, or at least there were for this year, there was uh, John's account, chapter 20, although it's only chapters one through nine. So again, it's, um, 
it stops before the appearance to Mary of Magdala. Right. Um, so there's, um, so it's, uh, so the reading does include the part where uh, Mary comes to the tomb, sees that the stone has been moved, and sees that Jesus isn't there, but does not include the encounter that Mary has with Jesus. That's so um, interesting. Yeah. Like, um, of all things to leave out. <laughs> um, it does It does stop. It does stop at, um, I think, still a profound place because uh, the reading from the excerpt from John's gospel, that's an option, um, ends with, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. So I do like, you know, I do think that it's still powerful that that, mm-hmm. that one ends there, um, that they did not understand. Um, but I, I think that one of the things that I really love about it is that um, the women are the first witnesses um but they're also some of you know they're the first voices in a very real way um of this gospel message right so if you know if part of you know if part of our charge as as christians is to is to witness to the you know witness to the risen christ then uh in at least what at least two of the four accounts um Uh, let's see, at least two, maybe three um, of the four accounts, they're the ones who do it. Um, and and one of the questions that I had, and this might lead into the second question that I had um, for you all, is if if these women are, are the first witnesses to the resurrection, is there a way to put them in conversation with the women of Judeo-Christian tradition that go all the way back to Eve? Is there a way, I know that sometimes there are conversations about Mary as the new Eve, um, you know, that that's sort of a thread of, of conversation that comes up in some Christian traditions, but is there a way that these women at the tomb kind of bring part of that story full circle? Or am I way off base on that one? <laughs> no, I mean, I think anytime I don't know. I read, I read the Bible kind of like I read, um, a lot of like African-American tradition literature, right? Like it's, it's always signifying in the new Testament on what came before Jesus is always, always signifying on the prophets who have spoken and on the Torah and on the, the language and the law that came before him for generations. Like, I think that is always part of the conversation. Um, I, I have to spend more time really thinking about it to create coherent arguments, I think, but automatically like Eileen, I would, um, I think you you brought up Ruth. I think that she's a great example of this, right? Of a, of a person just kind of living the life as she must per the law, and yet things are opened unto her. The miracles occur because she is being faithful in the way that she has been taught. Um, similarly, these women have been taught through their their lives and their learning to pay attention to the words of the prophet and hear their the prophets and hear they're doing it. You know, they recognize Jesus because of their 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 you know training isn't the right word because they wouldn't have been in, in, in temple in the same way. But I, I think hopefully you can follow what I'm trying to say. Um, I'm thinking of Esther even, right? Like Esther does the same thing. She's <laughs> just this girl who gets chosen um, and, and is in the palace. And yet she uses her voice to save her people and, and to speak truth to power in similar kinds of ways. Um, 
yeah, that's all I've got right now. Give me a minute. Maybe we'll have some more, but those come to mind automatically. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a, it's the ultimate validation of the equality and priesthood of all believers, right? Like you can't say that you can't have in like, if God made women to be the first heralds of the good news of the resurrection, then how can you turn around and say that they are somehow less than as, as people, as Christians, you know, and, um, and that's, and I'm not getting into like complementarian versus egalitarian as far as roles, but I'm just saying as like their worth as human beings, which, you know, they were considered second class citizens, you know, at the time and um, were not considered a, a valid witness in court. And so God making them the witnesses, the most important witnesses of the most important event of all of human, humanity, human history, um, really uh, kind of forever puts that away and and says that um, they are good enough, that, that they have worth. And, um, and, and Jesus did this all along, right? This is not like you're saying, like, it goes back to the women who were the disciples. It goes back to, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about the women who were following Jesus, and it mentioned several times in the the different um, Gospels, the, the women who followed him from Galilee. So these these women who were following him and, you know, learning at his feet and all this stuff. And it made me think of um, the Shumalite woman who uh, funded and prepared a, a place for either Elisha or Elisha. Uh, I'm just going to say it in a, like, kind of a weird um, in-between, so you can't tell which one I'm talking about because I always get them confused. But but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, she was another wealthy woman who used her means to support the work of the, of the kingdom, of the work of the Lord. And, and it was a different time and a different um, way. But um, but you, you do have these women all throughout who are doing this ministry and and God specifically pointing them out in in scripture. Um, and, you know, yes, scripture is often written from a, a male point of view, and there are downsides to that as far as who gets noticed. But even then, you know, God makes sure that we see the Deborahs and the Huldas and the Lydia's, you know, Lydia was the first woman, the first person to take the gospel to um, Europe, and she was a woman, you know, so over and over again, we get to see these women who are the the heralds, the the priestess, or I mean the prophetess and the apostles, Junia, you know, all over and over and over again, we see that this is not a one-off. This is not a um, a situation where we have some people who are favored by God, um, you know, over others, that, that we are all heirs in his kingdom and all um, partakers of his inheritance. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for helping me out with those uh, references. And I um, I need to go back to my uh, to my Hebrew scriptures and, and revisit some of these figures. I was thinking um, after I had tossed out the question about um, about bringing, you know, some of these women who have been part of this, you know, this prophetic uh, if if. Prophetic tradition is probably not the right phrase, but, you know, building this tradition that we've been talking about, I had uh, thought even back, uh, you know, even just back to the beginning of the, uh, the Gospels after the Annunciation, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth is one of, you know, is, um, you know, responds with, you know, blessed, you know, blessed is the fruit of your womb, right? And, mm -hmm. um 
you know, and so even she is proclaiming, right, very early on um, in, in a way that I think is, um, is really cool and really beautiful. Um, well, we talked and, about this in the Magnificat too, about right, the, yes. the prophecy and the, the, you know, he will cast down the, the powerful and, and mm -hmm. turn out the, you know, the, the wealthy and feed the poor and all that, um, that, that right. there's definitely some, some scriptural knowledge that goes into that and some, some very specific um, authority that she's speaking with. Yes. Yeah. And similarly, I mean, in Luke, we have both Simeon and Anna, right? We have Two, yeah. two prophets come up to Jesus's parents in the temple to say this baby is going to do stuff, you know. So all along um, in the New Testament, you get that, which is great. Mm -hmm. So in light of all this, what do you think? Uh, what do you think Christian women might be able to take or learn from specifically from the women of these passion accounts? Is there anything that we haven't broached? Um, or haven't brought up just yet that we think we might um, that we think we might be able to add, or um, yeah, are there any particular is there any particular aspect of it that we can use to take heart? Um, anything particularly? Um, uh, again, the word empowering comes to mind, but I'm not sure if that's the most appropriate one to use. Um, as I mean, Sarah, as... I'm going to stop you right there and say <laughs> we are empowered by the Spirit. Like, okay, to use that word there. That this is I was of thinking of it. Here, I've been right? thinking of it in a in a secular sense and like in the sort of pop culture sense. But you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So, is there anything that we uh, anything in particular that that we might want to encourage our our listeners to consider or to take uh, from these accounts um, in particular? I've seen several teachers make a point that, you know, if we really want to be true to the resurrection story, um, we should have a woman begin our Easter service by saying he is risen. You know, it's always a, a man, usually the pastor that gets up there and says it. But wouldn't it be cool if a church started a tradition where um, one of the women in the church every year got up and got to start the story by announcing he is risen as a way to proclaim and honor the women who were the first to make that announcement? Y'all, I just have to say, this is where I do, I do love my tradition, because at our church, at least, we've got three female clergy on staff, and this is often part of their job, and sometimes they get to preach. In fact, we had a woman preach on um, Easter, golly, I can't remember how many years ago now. Um, one of my good friends preached the sunrise service and got to talk about these women. So it is, it is oh, amazing. See, that's amazing. <laughs> see, yeah. 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 That, yeah, that's that would be really fascinating to experience. Um, that would be pretty cool. Um, I think, yeah, I, I like the idea of, yeah, the idea of being witness, of bearing witness, um, of, of claiming, you know, of claiming that position. And I think, Ilea, you might have been the one to, to bring it up a few minutes ago um, in a way that, that perhaps, um, that perhaps might not always uh, be placed front and center in, you know, in the stories. I was, um, as you all were, were mentioning uh, the idea of proclaiming, I was thinking within, um, within the Catholic tradition, uh, prelude music or, or an entrance hymn, I think would be, I don't know if there are many entrance hymns 
that focus on that. Um, I have to admit my uh, familiarity with, uh, specifically with worship music is um, probably not where it should be given that I've sung in church choirs for as long as I have. Um, but there, yeah, I think that would be, that could be another way to incorporate it right through, you know, through song um, and things like that. Um, is there, before we move on. Um, I, sorry, Sarah. Oh, is I there just anything else to, we want to add? Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to say two things. Sorry, I'm really chatty in my first appearance back here after a few years. No, that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> I'm so, so glad. No, no, you, you asked, you know, what can Christian women take or learn from the women of the passion accounts? For me, one of the, the big things is, you know, as we talked about the women mourning with Jesus wailing as he's walking the road to, to mm. Golgotha. And yes, as they're standing at the foot of the cross, we didn't spend much time on it today, but yeah. read the accounts um, and just imagine if you would with, with some historical theological imagination, what that might've been like. Um, I mean, I, I'm trying to do more of that in my own reading practice because I tend to get, read quickly without thinking deeply about what it would have felt like to be in that place. But what, what I'm taking from that is, um, especially in my current context, is that it's important to show up. And that may seem obvious, but, um, but to show up and, and to cry loudly sometimes. Um, I'm thinking specifically, I mean, we're sitting here today recording. Today is the last day of um, the Derek Chauvin trial. And we'll be waiting to hear what the jurors decide in this case. And you know, like part, part of my, I feel like my, my current calling is to show up and to speak up where necessary to amplify voices of color, to pay attention to those who are suffering and to, to suffer alongside them, right. To have compassion. Um, because if we're not like, that's what the women were doing. They were doing all along the road. They were doing on the cross. They were doing and supporting Jesus in his active ministry. Like they showed up all the time. Um, not trying to save, not trying to, to heal anyone but just to be there and to be a witness and to hold people up. And so that's one learning for me. Um, and then the other, I think I kind of said earlier, but is just follow the ritual when nothing else makes sense. Follow the ritual, but watch for the miracle. That's so great. The first thing when you started talking about, you know, the morning and stuff, that was the first thing that, that came to mind was the the show and trial and, and all of the yeah. Um, things that have gone on lately, and I feel like, you know, so uh, powerless to do anything but lament, you know, yeah. lament is like the one thing that I can do right now in some kind of, you know, on, online and social media, because we're so isolated still kind of with, with COVID, yeah. and and that's something that I feel like we have so little practice with in our society that the the, the ancient Hebrew society was so good at was was yes. this idea of lamenting and and really you know uh, crying out to God and and being open about our our fears and our our sadness and our sorrows and all that and I just think cultivating a, a space for lament is so important. Um, as we show solidarity um, mm -hmm. and as we look for a way forward, you know, we can't do that until we have lamented what has come before. So I think yeah. that's beautiful. Absolutely agree. I mean, the more I'm reading um, Christian writers of color, particularly African-American and black writers of color that are black Christians, that's what comes up over and over again. Like your mm -hmm. lament is important. Your acknowledgement of these things that have happened and continue to happen are important because we can't, like you said, we can't move on. 
um, all of us, right, including white folk, can't move on until we, white folk, will acknowledge what has gone yeah. on and what continues to happen. And and to, to have that space and to hold space for one another, um, it, it's absolutely vital. So thank you for making that connection. Yes, thank you all so much for those reflections. I and I think that what you all have said is um, is beautiful and um, noteworthy and and powerful, powerful testimony and uh, food for thought for us. So I don't know that I can put any additional cap on that. Um, so with that, then shall we move on to our passing on for today? Sure. Uh, all right. Um, Ailea, would you like to go first? Sure. I'm going to recommend um, a four-part blog series done several years ago by Rachel Held Evans. Um, she was an amazing uh, writer, and um, she has this series on the women of the passion that they're just little vignettes, but they're very insightful, and um, she was very um, big into uh, historical context for a lot of her um theology and so she brings some really interesting insight and uh it's it's definitely worth worth reading all all four of them so one of them caused uh quite a bit of controversy back in the day and um on the blog post there's some additional links for information on on some of that but it, um definitely worth reading all right thank you for that uh sheila what do you have for us this week Mine is a shameless plug for a friend and ministry colleague, actually. Um, her, the book is Women of Easter by Liz Curtis Higgs. Um, Liz Higgs has written a lot of books about women in the Bible. So you're, if you're interested in reading more about any of them, I recommend starting there. She has um, great sources and cites everything. So you can dig into stuff that she writes and find out more behind what she's written. But it's a really beautiful book about these women and, and the promises that they uphold, the space they hold, all of that wonderful stuff that we've talked about today. It's just really delightful, or delightful um, insightful reading. Uh, thank you for that, Sheila. And yes, I will definitely add that one to my reading list. Um, my uh, my passing on for this week is a, a brief blog post uh, from the uh, National Catholic Reporter. Um, and it is called, uh, it's a few years old. It's by Christine Skank. It's called the, I think I pronounced that correctly. It's called, it was the women who stayed. And so it uh, includes some more reading and reflection on women of the past, uh, passion from uh, within the Catholic tradition and perspective. Um, so I, you know, if you're looking to, um, yeah, to learn more about the, the Catholic take, on uh, women within the passion, then this reflection might be a good place to start. Um, with that, then, if there are, um, if there's not anything else that uh, we would like to add to our conversation, then I will thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. 
The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison. For Sheila Woodruff and Ilea Danner-Grubbs, I'm Sarah Thomas. Tune in in a few weeks when we will be discussing Mary Sidney Herbert, the Countess of Pembroke. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things love.